evening. We are low in number, but high in attitude, right? Okay. Good. I, I'm just going to do one of the uh, spin cycles tonight because this one is lengthy and it may take probably most of our time, if not all of it, that, that we have here tonight. So looking at these spin cycles from these spin doctors that we find uh, in our world today, here's number eight. <clears throat> Baptism is a work, and you can't be saved by works of any kind. Anybody ever heard that? It's out there. You cannot be saved by any kind of works at all. So give it up and listen to what they have to say. I find that many times people in our world today, they have a misunderstanding of of where we stand, or where the Bible stands, I should say, when it comes to baptism or immersion into Christ. And they will accuse us of teaching that the that baptism is a work of righteousness that gives us a, a point of being acceptable to God. I've never taught that. I don't know of anyone else who has, but it may be out there. I wouldn't doubt it. But in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, we're taught something important here that there's so much meat to this that I read this two or three times to, to really see the meat that was here. The Bible does teach that baptism is not a work of salvation, a work of righteousness. In Titus chapter 3 and verse number 5, <clears throat> the Bible said, Paul tells Titus there, that God has saved us, or Christ has saved us, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now look at that again. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. Not a problem. We haven't done a thing to earn salvation. But according to His mercy, He saved us through what? The washing of regeneration. That's baptism. If you've never seen that before, that is baptism, a renewal, a washing of regeneration, and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Is that not where the, the person gets, when they become a Christian, where they get salvation, they get forgiveness, they get the Holy Spirit? To me, Titus 3.5 says it very plain and clear, but the Bible teaches that the righteous are going to live by faith, Romans 1.17. But faith, trust, and obedience is how we respond to the precepts that we find within Scripture. God then responds to our obedient faith by giving us His grace as He promised He would give us. When we are in the grace of God, God tells us that what He's going to do now is take the righteousness of Christ and impute it onto each one of us so that when when we are in Christ, he no longer sees Mark or Jimmy or Donna or Nate or Amanda. He sees his son and the righteousness of his son. Our righteousness, and we've talked about this in this class uh, previously, and I think I've mentioned it from the pulpit as well. Our righteousness is nothing more than filthy rags in the eyes of God. In other words, it won't get us anywhere. We are not 
co-redeemers with Christ. That is, Christ did not do his part, and now we have to step up and do our part to get the salvation that we are going to have because of what he did and now what we are doing. We don't get salvation because of what we do. We contribute absolutely nothing when it comes to the righteousness that saves us. God imputes the righteousness of his son on us who are in that covenant just as he did to those folks of the Old Testament. In James chapter 2, James chapter 2, this is one of those scriptures that uh, many of the people of the denominations or the uh, faith-only world like to avoid. They do not like James chapter 2, verses 23, and especially verse 24. It says there, as James is speaking to those who are dispersed, and it's for us today as well, James chapter 2, verse 23 and 24, he says, And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, And he was called the friend of God. Now, verse 24, many of these people don't like this verse. You see then, as a result of verse 23, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. And I think I pointed this out before, that this is the only place in Scripture where the two words faith and only are are right next to each other. And it's it's saying that we're not, we're justified by works and not by faith only. Though the world wants to tell us that faith only is what saves a person. That's a contradiction to the Holy Word of God. We are saved, as we know, by the righteousness of Christ, just as Abraham was and those of the Old Testament were saved because the blood of Calvary not only goes up to us today from the cross, but it also goes back to those of the Old Covenant and covers them as well because they were covenant keepers with God as best as they could do under the sacrifices of the Old Testament. We receive the gift of salvation and the imputed righteousness of Christ by our obedient faith. And this is important, but the obedience is not some partial payment that we put out there to receive what God is going to give us. And I'll go into that here a little bit uh, later on. But Jesus said in Luke 17, 10, And I like this one. Luke 17, 10. Jesus is speaking here, and this is is something we need to hold on to as well. Luke chapter 17 and verse 10. Everybody have it? It says that when when we've done everything that we're supposed to do, we are still supposed to say one thing. I'm only an unworthy servant. I've only done my duty. The word duty is something that we don't like to hear today in our world. Do your duty. I do my duty to God and my country. What's that? The Boy Scout motto, something like that. I wasn't a Boy Scout. They wouldn't let me in. Too much of a girl. But... uh, All we did, you see, was keep the precepts that God commanded for us to keep. Why is it then, and this doesn't make any sense to me, and I don't think it really makes any sense to them, but why is it that when I develop my faith in my life, that the faith-only people don't mind me working my faith to develop it, but they don't want me to work otherwise? What I see here is, 
we know how much it takes if we've done it. We know how much it takes to develop faith. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, I really hope that you are more faithful and understand things in God's Word more than you did back at the beginning. Faith comes by hearing. How hard is it sometimes to listen? I said, <laughs> sometimes it's hard to listen. It takes work and effort for us to really focus. And sometimes I look out at the audience on Sunday morning and Sunday night, and some people are looking at me more than others. Aren't you, Raymond? I, I don't know if I should be afraid of him. or, But it takes work to listen. I had a teacher who said, put your listening ears on. As though... I had something else. But faith comes by hearing. And it comes by hearing the word of God. And developing faith does take time. It takes effort. It takes determination. It takes diligence. It takes desire on our part to do that and be involved in that. Otherwise, we would just be a pew sitter and nothing will ever happen. Baptism is something that... None of us even do, that is, when it's done to us. Baptism is something we submit to, yet the faith-only folks want to scream, that is a work of salvation on my part when I'm baptized into Christ. Yet at the same time, Jesus Christ himself called faith a work. In John chapter 6, verse 29, go ahead and turn there, if you will, while I correct something here that I, I made a mistake. John 6, 29. Jesus says there, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who has, whom he has sent. God has done some work here. Why don't they put a spin cycle on faith and say we can't even believe on our own, but yet there are some Calvinists who will do even that, that you cannot believe on your own. God chooses you and you're just, you're either in or you're not chosen. But the inconsistent Calvinists who don't really fall any place, because I really don't think they have any place to fall, they don't mind working to get faith. They don't mind working to repent. They don't even mind working to confess Christ with your mouth, Romans 10, 17. And they just don't want us to work, supposedly, for baptism for the very reason that God has given. And here's why. They say, and I mentioned this in the very beginning, because it's a physical act that man does. And you can't be saved by anything physical. Really? I mean, think about that with me for just a moment. Tell that to God. Tell that to God. God doesn't seem to know that physical acts can't save us. Because what did he do? God has some crazy idea that the physical body of his son hanging on a cross would save us. What a ridiculous idea. Even God doesn't know that that doesn't save you in their mind. But how much more physical can you get? I find it hypocritical for people to say that about baptism, that 
That's salvation that comes by way of works. And then they'll turn right around and ask someone to just say this prayer and pray Jesus into your heart. Now think about that for a minute. How many of you have ever prayed? I'd hope I'd see every hand and maybe even two. Every one of us have prayed. Is prayer not a physical act that you get involved in to one degree or another? A simple prayer around the table of thanks for the food? A simple prayer in the morning for God to watch over me, keep my children safe? Is it not a real act of trust in God or is it just something we go through because, well, we've been taught to say, thank you, God, and there's nothing behind it. You see, it's, it better have something behind it. Because when we pray a prayer of remorse for a sin that we've committed, or even a thought that we've had towards someone or about someone, if there's no remorse behind it, it's just simply going through the motions, and it didn't really mean anything anyway, and God will probably not Listen to our prayer. There is a, a proverb that says, one who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination to God. And that's something we need to be careful of. God could have required a sinner's prayer, but he didn't. He requires, according to his word, as we read it and study it and put all of the dots together, he required baptism into someone's death a burial for dead-to-sin souls, baptism for the remission of sin in saving souls by trusting God, obedient faith to Him every single time. And to those who say we have water on the brain, and I've been accused of that by some people, and that we believe that we're saved by baptism only, I know there may be some people in every pew or every congregation around this world who think, I was baptized. And now they're in. Baptism does not save us any more than repentance or confession or simply believing or having faith in God unless we do something on the tail end of every single one of those. The New Testament teaches us that we are saved by grace. But it does not teach that we are saved by grace alone. It teaches that we are saved by grace through our obedient faith, but faith is always inclusive of all the precepts of the covenant. Brides always wear the name of the groom, or they will when they're through with the ceremony. I've done quite a few weddings in my life. My first one was in 1987. I was just, I mean, fresh out of, of college. I showed up at this wedding suit and tie, I was all dressed, and I showed up, and they're in coveralls and bibs. It was on an old farm out, out in their backyard, and I thought, man, am I dressed improperly. But anyway, every wedding that I've ever performed in marrying somebody else, the groom is down front, the door's open for the bride, and boy, is she pretty. Boy, is she handsome, or boy, she's beautiful. And she begins to walk down the aisle, and as she approaches and sees her groom there, I've never seen her look at the best man and say, Preacher, I think I made a bad choice. I think I want to marry the best man. But yet I find, some of you are thinking, I don't even want to put, no, don't we, nah, we're not going to do that. 
But <laughs> the Baptist congregation, where's the name of the best man? Not the name of the groom. You see, we emphasize the Lord Jesus Christ in the very name of the one we wear. Or the one we worship. In Romans 16, 16, the Apostle Paul said, The churches of Christ salute you. He did not say the churches of the Baptists, the churches of the Methodists, the churches of the Lutherans, or the Presbyterians, or the Catholics, or, or anything else. He said, The churches of Christ, the bride of Christ salutes you. And I think that's very important for us to remember. What God has done in offering salvation to those who demonstrate obedient faith would be somewhat like me saying this. Jimmy, I've decided to give you a gift. I've decided to give you my estate at my death. It's worth $500 million, give or take $500 million. Okay? And then I add this to the, the statement. I say, all you have to do is keep three precepts. For you to get this $500 million, give or take $500 million. And I proceed to tell you that the three terms of the, the uh, covenant are, one, you have to be an honest friend to me. Can you do that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> you ruined my entire thing here. And secondly, you have to visit me at least once a month, just to sit down and talk and chat and, and, and be nice to me. Fake it if you have to. And third, you have to trust me that I'm going to leave you my estate. You have to be my honest friend, visit me once a month, and trust me that I'll leave it to you. So you keep the terms of the part. You visit me once a month. You, you are my honest friend. And being the good Christian that I am, I keep my promise. And I die, and you get $500 million, give or take $500 million. Now, did you earn that? Did you do anything to make that gift more valuable? Not at all. Not at all. It's still a gift. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. I did it because, Jimmy, I love you as a brother in Christ. You see, all you did was qualify yourself to be the recipient of my $500 million, give or take $500 million, by keeping the precepts that I stated. Does that sound like he earned it? He qualified himself, yes. But if you just obeyed two of those concepts, and then I still say, okay, you can have it, then that makes me out to be a liar. And if I'm going to lie, there's nobody who can trust me. Because I told you, you need to keep all three, but if you keep only two and I follow through with it, then I'm a liar. God is not going to tell us something in his scripture and push it aside for the sake of one or two people or quite a few people because they were dishonest or, or unfaithful. God told us that we have to keep dozens of precepts. And they're all laid out in the New Covenant. They're all laid out in the Scriptures. And I could lie to you. I could preach a number of sermons and, and lie to you and tell you that all you have to do is pray and ask Jesus into your heart and wouldn't do you any good. You might feel good. 
And I might make you feel good by telling you incorrectly how you are, how you are now okay in the sight of God. I could tell you that. But you don't receive the gift of God by how you feel or by what a preacher says, especially if the preacher does not preach what is in the Word of God. Keeping the precepts does not earn us eternal life. Doing the things that God commands for us to do is because He loves us, He knows what's best for us, and we return the love that we have for Him by doing what He commands for us to do. It simply qualifies us to be in the covenant relationship with Christ because of our love for Him. So suppose someone takes me seriously and qualifies themselves for my estate. So they go back to their home, their friends, and, and they say, wow, wasn't that a nice pre- uh, gift that preacher Mark gave to you? But being the good Calvinist that you are for just a moment, uh, uh, Jimmy, you say, well, it wasn't a gift. You say, why? Well, they... They say, because I earned it. He says, because I earned it. Well, I at least earned part of it by doing what he told me to do. You see, it's crazy when we think about it because just because you did what you were told to do doesn't mean you contributed anything to the gift that was available. It did not become any more valuable, any less valuable of a gift just because you visited me once a month, you were a good friend to me, And because you trusted that I would do what I said I would do. By God's grace, he gives us the gift of salvation. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 says, For by grace you are saved through faith. And every time we see faith in the scriptures, we could almost always, if not always, put the word obedient faith right with it. How do we receive the gift of God? The Bible says by faith. By obedient faith. Faith is not obedient. Faith that is not obedient is nothing more than wishful thinking. Nothing more than hoping for something that you want, but you're not going to receive. Repentance is my believing faith convicting me of my sin and the truth of the Word of God and believing in that to the point that I will turn away from what I'm doing against God and now doing the right thing. Baptism is faith that causes me to submit, to submit to the command of God. It is still grace. All I did was receive it, and all I did was qualify for it. Circumcision. This is a part of this uh, idea as well. Uh, circumcision has always been the sign of the covenant that God had with Abraham. And this is what inducted the people of, of Israel into the faith of Judaism in the Old Testament. God gave Abraham this precept in Genesis 17, verse 10. He said, this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Plain and simple. God went on in verse 14 and he said these words. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from the people. He has broken my covenant. We know that God was was interested in more than just physical circumcision that was performed with every male that came through that Uh, 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 nation. 
But God made this clear in Jeremiah chapter 4 and also in Deuteronomy 10, Deuteronomy 30, Jeremiah 9, Romans 2, and Colossians chapter 2, which we'll look at in a little bit. When he said these words, Jeremiah 4, 4, he said, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and, for, and remove the foreskin of your heart. The foreskin of your heart, that is anything that separates you from God. Get rid of it. Anything that holds you back of being service to God, get rid of it, stop it. Paul also says in Romans 2, verses 28 and 29, he says a circumcision does not make a man a Jew. He said that it takes a circumcision of the heart that was done by the Holy Spirit when a person presents himself or herself to God for salvation. Presenting themselves to God. This was God's desire all along, if we look at it in Scripture. But it wasn't made possible until the, the kingdom of God came in Acts chapter 2 after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, and the Holy Spirit came on the earth. This covenant of the circumcision of the heart is fulfilled in Christian baptism. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 2 speaks very clearly of this. Paul had a lot to say about baptism and uh, getting into Christ. And this is one of those areas where he mentions it very clearly for these people to understand. Colossians 2, beginning of verse number 9. And Paul is speaking here to the church at Colossae. He says in verse 9, Colossians 2, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him. Notice the words, in him. Who is the head of all principality and power. Verse 11, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. That is, it's not something done by humans. By putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, and how is that done? By the circumcision of Christ. In verse 12, he says, Buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. He tells us that our sins were forgiven. And this is very important, something we should hold very dear in our hearts. But, but did you notice who does the work in baptism? In verse number 12, notice it again. Buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God. This is where God does his work. God who raises this person from the dead. So I hope we understand that, that uh, no matter what people in the world will say, we need to listen to what God says about baptism, about the whole process of salvation, that it is not just baptism, but it is believing because we hear the word, repenting because we've been convicted through that belief, confessing Christ is the only one who can save us through repentance, and then being buried with him because we died in repentance and then we rise to walk in that brand new life of service to Him. I'm going to stop there. And we'll start next week on uh, 
spin cycle number nine. So we're going to sing an invitation hymn. And Christian, I want to encourage you to stay faithful. Be faithful. Don't give up because the day will come when we wish we had been more faithful if we have not been. So let's stand and sing our hymn of decision tonight.